back to Sism and Disturbia, the podcast where I don't always have a tagline at the beginning, and sometimes I have to make it up right off the cuff. This is Brent. I'm Jonathan. So this week we have, I always say that, I always say like this week, but it's like a bi-weekly, we do it every other week. I mean, every week there's something involved for you and I, or mostly for you, so I guess it's fair to say like this week, because last week we had other things going that still were the podcast, like editing and releasing and stuff. It just ruins continuity for the listener. I should stop doing that. Well, they probably think you're a dick anyway. <laughs> That's good. I know I'm a dick. So, Anyways, this episode, we'll be talking a little bit more about firewalls. Just want to talk about layouts of rules and things like that. Writing proposals for management, because that's always an important thing to do. We'll be talking about Git and Gitolite. Is it Gitolite or Gitolite? I always say Gitolite. Gito, but the software is Git. Yeah, I know, but it just seems like when you put it all together, it should be Gito. It looks kind of Spanish. Maybe that's why. Spanish. I'm just going to pronounce it Gitolite. I'm going to say Gitolite. Because you like to be contrary. And we'll be talking about the different cabling methods for ethernet so cat5 cat5e cat6 cat6a all that we'll be talking about some pen testing tools you can use if you are in a position to do that legally we'll also be talking a little bit more about regexes i love talking about regular expressions yeah i know you like to talk in them as well it's handy i mean not speech but on irc if you need to talk about three things at once and they have a matching pattern it's easier to just type that probably not (laughs) It definitely is. You're just saying that because you don't understand regexes. That's not entirely true. Oh, you've been working on them? No. But, I mean, I've got some basics down. I can usually use PDSH to make my way around the cluster and do things I need to do sufficiently. Okay, let's start. I'm just going to go right into it. Did you have anything about firewalls you were going to talk about? To be fair, I don't really recall what we talked about last time in its entirety. It was a very overview kind of a thing. I guess what I would have to say mostly is... Don't overthink it. And I mean that in the sense that your default policy should be reject. And, you know, you should really only open the ports that you have to. And in that sense, you should keep it simple. If you don't need to do anything crazy with your firewall, you shouldn't because that's just more room for error and more room for you to make a mistake such that someone has access to your system. Beyond that, I haven't done anything too extensive with firewalling or anything like that. I've never really made like a dedicated firewall box on my home network or anything. Well, I'm going to tell you you're wrong, as I frequently do. That's actually a good segue in. So the default policy should always be drop. Okay, I said reject, but realistically, I mean... Yeah, well, that's a common misconception. I got into, like, this is going to sound so stupid and so petty, but I got into this argument with someone on LinkedIn on one of their forum boards. He said, you know, always make the default policy reject to prevent DOS, denial of service, and DDOS, distributed denial of service, attacks. And I said, uh, hold up, you're 100% wrong there. Rejects will make it worse. If they hit a port no service is listening on, no big deal. They won't be able to attack a service that isn't there. But usually DOSs and DDOSs are designed to cripple the networking stack of a system. What the reject rule does, the reject chain, I should say, rather, is instead of just dropping the packets, like the drop policy does, where it just basically doesn't reply to them, it just forgets about them as soon as they come in, the reject policy sends a packet back to the source saying, hey, this port is closed slash there's nothing on here. Maybe you have the wrong port. 
it sends a packet back for each packet sent. Essentially, if you're using reject rules, you're giving twice the power to a DOS or a DDoS. And that's probably by far the most common network attack out these days is, is a DOS or DDoS. I found that so aggravating because I'm trying to explain like, no, you have it wrong. I'm providing links to like documentation and all this other stuff. And he just kept on going on about no, use reject, use reject. And I'm like, reject is for a very specific thing. And I think you maybe are endangering your corporate environment's firewall by using reject. But you know what? If he wants to do that, that's fine. It's his job, not mine. I should clarify. I said reject, but I actually meant drop. Yeah, I figured. Because we just talked about this the other day. We did? I'm not about to tell you what sparked it the other day, other than we were arguing about IP tables and shorewall. Right. Well, we have that, that discussion a fair bit. But yeah, default policy always should be dropped. I don't think it's a bad thing to put a lot of meditation and thought into your firewall rule set either. I don't think it's possible to overthink it. I just think it depends what you're doing. If you're running like a simple VPS that's running, let's just say, a web server, a VPN, and you want secure shell access aside from the VPN, realistically, all you have to do is set your default policy to drop, make exceptions for those three ports, potentially, maybe four, depending what you're doing with your web server, etc., etc., and call it good. That's my argument, though, is that's how you approach firewalling. Really only open what you need is what I'm trying to say. I'd agree with that. The difference, I think, is how we approach that. Meaning you and I? Yeah. Okay, that's fair, sure. But to be fair, we do very different things with our VPSs as we talked about two weeks ago or whatever. Well, yeah, I've got multiple ones and I, I tend to split them up by purpose. But I'm a favor of the most restrictive policy. So if there's any instance where you would legitimately want only one host or one range to have access to a certain service, you should only allow that certain service or that certain address access rather than just whitelisting the entire port. I agree with that. I tend to just not limit myself that way, I guess, because, well, for one, and we talked about this, my only access to my VPS via secure shell is through my VPN. Mm -hmm. And I understand that's not ideal for everyone, but I'm fortunate enough with Linode to have remote access. If for some reason the open VPN service didn't start, I could still access my Linode. I'm noticing a broken record. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's the thing is for me, that eliminates so many security issues in the sense that I don't have to worry about people brute forcing secure shell because it's literally only open on a single interface. And that's my VPN interface. Beyond that, it's not only that interface, but it's only port 22, which now you all know. Have fun. That's the default port so that's the one they'd most likely be trying anyways i should also mention that like running a service on an alternate port there are still people who think that's a secure approach it's not all that'll do is cut down on the traffic in your logs which arguably can be a good thing especially if you're low on io throughput on that box or you should do it the proper way and just decrease logging or disable it if you can afford that kind of lack of trail i wouldn't recommend it but whatever maybe you like to live dangerously and it also can cut down on being the low-hanging fruit but but that does nothing. I'll talk about Nmap. You can easily get a list of every single port accessible to you and what service is running on it and what version of that service is running on it and all sorts of crazy stuff like that from Nmap. So moving it to a different port is going to do squat except maybe someone doing a giant address range scan. If it's a targeted attack, they're not going to be doing that. They're going to be looking for anything your box has open. That's exactly right. And, you know, you see these big web hosts like HostGator and I believe GoDaddy also does the same thing. And I don't know if they do it for different reasons, to be fair. You might have some more insight since you worked at ASO. But in all honesty, it's just like 
kind of a waste and kind of a pain in the ass because it adds that extra step for a customer who's not as familiar with the service to have to, you know, learn to change their port or specify an alternate one. Well, I haven't seen their internal setup. So, I mean, maybe we'll hear from a staff member from one of those hosting companies. They may be running SSH on an alternate port because they may be using the default port for their management SSH, you know, for the system-wide SSH, and then be running like a jailed, CH-rooted, whatever SSH on an alternate port that has a much more restrictive policy on it. Yeah, and that's totally possible. I'm just saying if it's for the purpose of, you know, thwarting predators. Right. I hope it isn't. It really doesn't do anything. I don't understand why people think that's even a good recommendation for security. If it's a brute force attempt, nine times out of 10, they're not going to be checking to see if the port's open. So you're still getting the traffic pushed to that port anyways, which is why it's important to use a drop rule for that. Whatever, I digress. I think I mostly wanted to mention when it comes to firewalling is the nice thing about most Linux distributions is they have a a pretty good policy on handling that. So you can install SSH, Apache, Nginx, whatever you want, but it won't actually start that service by default on the better, in my opinion, distributions. You have to explicitly enable it to start and start it yourself. Ubuntu is a... Actually, Ubuntu, SUSE, Fedora, Magia, a lot of the more popular ones, the user-friendly ones, and this is why I think user-friendliness is a joke, a lot of them will start the service and enable it on boot upon installing it. Yeah, that's bullshit. That's a stupid idea, and I don't like it. If you accidentally install it somehow, if it's pulled in as a dependency and you're just not aware of it, it's running and you don't even realize it. I was absolutely going to say that. And then, you know, user-friendly, sure, it's fucking colorful and flashy until you get hacked or some shit and then you're pissed off anyway i understand the reasoning behind it i just think that it's a very nearsighted approach the reason i mentioned that is on a good distribution one that doesn't actually do this shit automatically you won't have a service listening on that port it'll act as if it's just a drop rule if there's nothing listening on that port it'll just show up as closed in a port scan and that's pretty much true of all linux right As long as there's nothing listening on it, yeah. However, if there is not a service listening on a port, but it is opened in the firewall, it'll be shown as filtered slash rejected. Which is still pretty safe. Right. I think that might be a more valid reason to use reject. I mean, it still remains that, like, you know that that port is open. There may not be anything listening on that port, and like I said earlier, you can't exploit a service that's not running remotely. And there's, like, one or two exceptions to that, but they're few and far between by far. Generally speaking, that's not a good idea to open a port for a service that isn't even running, unless you have a good reason to. Simply because of Intel. You don't want to allow that Intel to to be leaked, because the, the reasoning there is, well, maybe it's sometimes running on that port, and maybe sometimes you can access that service on that port. And then that leads to, like, 24-hour port checks and things like that. Uh, So they can build a window of when that service is actually running on that port. Think of it like if you go on vacation and you have automatic lights turned on in your house, but they don't vary at all. So, you know, someone can sit outside your house and they see you and your lights turn on and off every day. And they're going to see that pattern and realize, oh, well, the lights are going on and off, but nobody's actually home. Only in this case, it'd be more like you have like an automatic light schedule, right? Like you were just talking about. Only you have it set for when you come back from work. So it automatically turns on at 5.15 because that's when you get home from work. And then it automatically shuts off at, I don't know, 11 p.m. And then 
they automatically start again at like eight in the morning and then shut off again at like 9 15 or something that's even more dangerous because then that thief knows exactly when your regular time to be home is that's not like a, a wide window they can get a specific detailed schedule of your everyday window that's closer to what this is because then they know exactly when you're home and really it's it'd be more accurate to say that they're trying to build a profile of when you're home so they can murder you or something you know they want to actually make that connection rather than do it when that connection is absent. That's a pretty good analogy of why that's a bad idea. I can't believe I just spent like almost 20 minutes talking about that bullshit. I think it's probably good to leave it there. If you guys have any questions, we've both worked in various situations. I'm sure Brent probably has way more experience than I do with very specific things. But at this point, I've configured many a firewall and so far no issues. So I'm happy to you know answer any questions I can. We'd love to hear from y'all, whether it be on uh, Twitter or irc or whatever man that's just so boring <laughs> yeah we should have closed with that one instead then they could have just exited out yeah whatever if you're sticking through with this kudos to you man you're a trooper here's another boring one writing management proposals specifically uh change management proposals sometimes you'll be in a a work environment typically they're going to be more like corporate enterprise environments where you need to make a change only you either don't have the access to do that change or you will get as my my boss puts it shit canned if you make that change without approval and notification and all that such being shit canned is when they walk to your desk with a box say clean out your things and then escort you out the door you typically don't don't come back from that. So to avoid that, you need to learn how to play the game, so to speak. The whole change management thing, it's bullshit. If you're under 15 employees, maybe 20 employees, you really don't need change management. I'm sorry if you disagree, but that's some bullshit. Because at that point, the overhead you're creating to follow that change management is more than the actual work that would be done. It's like the joke that like, well, I mean, maybe not recently, but like cops are always hesitant to, to fire their sidearm because for each bullet, it takes like three sheets of paperwork to fill out. You want to make sure that you approach it right, and if you're the one who gets to decide if there should be change management in place, keep in mind that it's not a magic bullet, if you'll pardon the, the reference. It's not a magic bullet, it's not a, a fix-all, it's not going to stop people from making stupid mistakes. All it does is let you know who made the stupid mistake. And if you're in a company small enough, you're going to know who made the stupid mistake in the first place. So it's, it's a really redundant waste of time, and it's kind of a constrictive policy. But once you start getting in bigger environments... There's a lot of things relying on maybe the most inane detail. So let's say you want to make a change to a firewall relevant to what we were just talking about, you know? This will vary from company to company because they may have a, a form you need to fill out or you need to send an email out to a certain distribution list, whatever. You want to note and make sure of several key things. You want to give plenty of time before the desired change. Obviously, this doesn't apply to like absolute emergency break fix stuff, in which case you should always do a follow-up for those so people are aware that a change was made. But normal change management, you want to make the advanced notice window relevant to the severity of the change so you may uh like hey i want to install this one package this this one piece of software on this server not it may not necessarily even be in production yet just like hey i want to make this change that's like that's like a two-day notice right there something bigger like i want to change the public ip address of this other server i mean there you're looking at like a week in my book typically a week is when that would be done now if it's something really big like retiring a server especially if that server has like is user facing for something like that you want to usually get it out in as much time as possible a good goal is for a month but two to three weeks is is ideal as well do you have change management at your place jathan 
Not exactly. I don't want to say too much here because I don't really know who listens to this from work potentially. In my opinion, we just kind of do things inefficiently in the sense that we're like six people. I think it's incredibly too hard to get enough people or the right people on board with making a change because it's sort of just like this mentality that the way things have been done is the right way just because it's how they've always been done. You know, in a lot of cases, I don't really have the creative liberty, if you will, to just go ahead and enact a change that I think is a good change. There's some things that I have a little bit more leeway with than others. Of course, every situation is different, but we don't have like a formal process, but I also would definitely hear about it if I just went and made some change without really asking the right people. And, you know, you hear me talk about this all the time. Sometimes it's really frustrating for me because there are a lot of kind of legacy things that we do where I work and... And you can't get clearance to change them. Yeah, typically. And it's just kind of like, okay, well, now I have to work around this. Either it makes things a lot harder or it just doesn't make sense to me. Or it just stabilizes a new thing you're trying to implement or the old thing. At some times, sure, certainly. So, you know, it's going to be interesting. We're kind of changing things around a little bit in terms of staffing, and that's all I'm going to say there. But... I'm hoping that we have a little bit more of a structure in terms of how things are going to move forward than we have for a while now. You touched on an important point with the legacy stuff. By all means, keep it stable, but don't let it get old and crufty. Because the longer you keep a system in place and the longer you put off upgrading or or whatever that may mean, hardware, software, whatever, or even switching over to newer technologies that may have obsoleted what you're using, the longer you wait to do that, the harder it is, number one. And number two, you're making more work for yourself by trying to work around that obsolete implementation that you're trying to keep alive on life support. It's a horrible mentality. And take note, by the way, CTOs and and people who make these decisions, it's stupid and you're stupid. It's a horrible idea. If you need to keep something that's that legacy in place, then you're doing it absolutely wrong. And there's, there's no excuse. And you see this everywhere. You see this everywhere. Yeah, and I mean, you know... I'm, again, I'm not going to say too much. I'm sorry, but I just, it's not really my place. But you specifically know what I'm talking about right now with the thing that we're working on migrating and reworking right now. Yep. And it is just the biggest pain in the balls because at this point we're using, in this case, a configuration management tool. And it's still like a viable up-to-date tool if you keep it that way. But we're using a version that's way older than the current and things have changed a lot. And so instead of adapting to those changes as they happened, we just, and I don't even mean to keep saying we because I wasn't really there for that long. We just kept rolling with, you know, the old way and we put off updating, put off updating. And now it's finally to the point where we have no other choice really. But it's like, going to be months of work to get everything moved it's always going to be more affordable to your company and you may disagree with me but you're going to be wrong about this if you introduce modular regular changes instead of large infrequent changes or no changes at all have fun with that it boggles my mind like why is everyone so opposed to patching and i think that's why we see so many compromises there have been compromises where a fix has been out for months a year or two and people are still falling vulnerable to these because they just either hate patching or they just don't have the authority to to do it or they've been denied the authority to do it or what have you and it ends up hurting everyone so get off your high horse 
So after you have made your plea to management, and sometimes you do need to suck up, and this is where I'm going to get into playing the game. Well, first and foremost, know who you're having to talk to. If you're talking to someone who is another systems administrator or whatever your position may be, talk to them like they would understand. If you're talking to somebody who still has to approve this change but doesn't necessarily know all of the technology or the the lingo, if you will, behind it. Which, to be fair, is about eight or nine times out of ten. I'm not saying dumb it down because that's like the wrong mental approach to take don't dumb it down but make it understandable and make your case in such a way that that person sees the appeal and here's i think where our levels of experience differ when i say play the game i mean it this is how you're going to approach this if they're like more technically minded you can usually make your case reasonably well but if they're managerial minded and they're not very technical minded you need to speak their language and that doesn't mean make it in an easy to understand way that means don't explain it to them at all you need to appeal to their sense of worth they only care at the at, at the end of the day and this isn't them as a person this is their role in the company they only care about the money so you need to explain to them how this change will make money for them and or the company and sometimes you need to do it in a very kind of devious way take them out to coffee get to talking you know just hang out whatever and go i was hoping to install this one package by thursday that sound all right to you and they're like oh yeah whatever their mind isn't on the defensive at that point you know you, you butter them up and this is like social engineering right here. Take some classes on it, by the way, because it's a very useful tool. Their mind's in a different place, so you can appeal to that sense of approval. So then it's like, yeah, yeah, it's fine, whatever. That's that's okay. Um, it's like, great, you know, I'll, I'll send the paperwork over, and then don't mention it again. Just switch right to the next topic. And then as soon as you get back, send them an email or the form or whatever you have to do. And chances are they'll, they'll sign it. You've got a much higher probability of getting that change approved if you approach it like that. Is it annoying? Absolutely. Do I think it's dishonest? Maybe a little bit, but you know what? Shit isn't going to get done otherwise. For me, what it boils down to, I don't have the same experience again. I don't really have such an appeal process. For me, what it really boils down to is kind of like this level of frustration because most of the people that I'm dealing with, I can't just walk up and say, hey, I'd really like to blank by Thursday because the immediate question is going to be why every single time. That's your problem. You don't just walk up to them and bring it up to them. It can't be the primary subject of the conversation because that puts them on defensive about that subject. I mean, the big thing is I have people surrounding me that really like to play devil's advocate. And in a lot of cases, I think they feel that that really helps to assess the situation best because they're hitting it from more angles. But in reality, I think that while trying to play devil's advocate, they still convince themselves that whatever they're saying as quote unquote the devil is is right you know what i'm saying yeah if you were proposing something to me like i think we should implement this software and i was like well why how comes we don't use this blah 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 and in me saying that i actually like the solution i came up with to oppose yours better and then therefore never accept yours you're asking for permission in that case you're not suggesting it what you want to do is instead of saying um you know i think we should do such and such that tends to automatically encourage people to take an opposition stance so instead what you want to say is is it all right if we do such and such by such and such date that opens the door a lot more because then they're not in a position to, to contradict you it's like oh we could do the same thing with xyz because then they're instead in the position of yes or no 
And people tend to not like saying no. Yeah, that's pretty valid. I might have to try these tactics. Yeah, give it a shot. Let me know how it works out. It took me a lot of years to figure that out. I'm not trying to say I'm like some kind of deviant, manipulative bastard. That's just interacting with people. And that's just understanding how people work and learning to convey what you need to convey, I think. I don't know how we went from like writing proposals for management is it like social engineering, but it's pretty cool that we did. Well, they kind of go hand in hand in some cases. You can really use the social engineering aspect to your advantage. Yeah. And remember, you're not using this for devious purposes. At the end of the day, you're still trying to improve the quality of the systems you're monitoring and running. You know, you just need to maybe you have to hack it and not like hack as in like black hat, the dirty version. I mean, in the traditional old school sense of the word, you have to play with it a little bit, figure out how it works, do some interesting things with it and find a different way of approaching it. I do want to close this out with always, 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 always whether it's planned or not, send follow-up notices. I'm guilty of not always doing this myself. I forget sometimes. But it's so helpful, at the very least, to have that email trail in your outbox. Chances are down the line, someone will ask about it. It's really awesome if you can pull up that email. So it's like, oh, give me five seconds pull up the email and tell them, all right, well, I did this, this, and this, and this, this, and this happened. Always do that whenever you can. If you're not the only sysadmin, all of the other admins will thank you for it. It just makes everything so much easier. Not to mention, you know, doing it properly and letting everyone know and keeping everyone updated makes it more likely that they're going to trust you or allow you to implement change in the future. I think you have a very optimistic view about people. Well, that's crazy because normally I'm like the biggest pessimist ever. I know, it's weird. I'm going to move on. Are you ready to move on? Totally ready to move on. Guys, I am sorry. We opened up with the boring stuff. So hold on to your seats. Maybe you're listening to us in the background. That's fine. So Git slash Gitolite. Git is originally written by Linus Torvalds, who if you use Linux, you'll definitely recognize the name. He's the original writer and current head maintainer, I guess you would call it, of the Linux kernel. The Linux kernel, because it's an open source and community driven, there's a difference between open source and community driven. Open source means you just release the source code, which I think is bare minimum a necessity. And then community driven is when you allow the community as a whole to contribute back. You know, you may be at the liberty to accept patches or deny them, but you're still welcoming that contribution, that input, that effort to make this thing that you're doing better. So that is a slight distinction. That aside, the kernel source is huge. I think it's around 100, 200 megabytes. That's all ASCII. That's all straight code. Like some million lines of code now, I think. We mentioned this in an earlier episode with the exact numbers. I can't remember the numbers exactly, but it's, it's huge. It's a big, big, big project. To manage a project of that size, especially that's community driven, you need a way of tracking and incorporating a lot of different changes. Absolutely. And a lot of different proposed changes. A lot of changes that you need to incorporate that you haven't already, things like that. Now, source control and versioning is nothing new. I want to say the first widely used one. It wasn't the first one to exist, but the first widely used one was probably CVS. Unfortunately, it's a piece of shit by today's standards. Then you saw a thing called Subversion. Subversion was okay. It wasn't terribly flexible, but, you know, it's it's uh, it worked. Yeah, I seem to recall a lot of people using Subversion simply to like share 
source and files instead of actually using it as revision control. Especially in the gaming world, like Gary's mod, you'd have to check out all of your mods from SVN. And it wasn't like, oh, here's how we keep all of our stuff together. It was simply just like, this is how we share it. I know a lot of the reason you would check out directly from SVN is because SVN implemented like uh, user controls. So you'd be able to have like a multi-user access to that source code repository. That's why SVN was a big step up. It let you do some really awesome multi-user stuff. And then we moved from that and Linus wrote Git. Git is interesting in that it's the first one to do, to approach code revision as a decentralized method. Meaning instead of checking out and checking in revisions and blocking the repository, you make a full copy of the repository, make your changes locally, and then Git tries to intelligently merge that back in with other changes being made simultaneously by other people. And for the most part, it does a pretty rad job of it there's some hiccups once in a while and it's very worthwhile to learn how to fix those but generally speaking they don't crop up and if they do it's because someone's doing something stupid like making commits before pulling first or not merging correctly or what so generally it's very useful and then after that you have things like bizarre and mercurial and the kind of like hipster source version control stuff i don't understand the appeal of them git is great at what it does and all the attempts to improve it is have been mostly just cosmetic you know it gets very handy if you share scripts or config files, I run a git repository on my slash Etsy on my boxes, and then I have it updated via a cron every night so I can review what changes I made to config files and such. It's very handy. It saved my ass more than once. It doesn't do so well with binary files, but I mean, that's kind of a kind of is what it is. Ideally, you can store a way to regenerate those binary files in the repository. So that'd be the ideal way to do that. The problem is it supports SSH. That's not a problem. It supports some other access methods, but it falls short on multi-user extended privileges. So usually like you can add someone is a committer and they have full access to that repository or they can be like read only those are like your two choices in vanilla git so in steps in gitolite and there are other things like gitlab and, and stuff like that but the, i'm not a fan they're huge and they're bloaty let's be clear about this right now github is not git it is not git it's a git hosting service git was not developed by them anything like that and they have a lot of flash but at the end of the day, i don't think they do a really good job of what they do they just happen to have a monopoly on the market you're talking about GitHub, correct? GitHub, yeah. I believe GitLab is the software they run. So GitLab.com is also hosting. They are also host. Okay, yeah. They also offer a server software you can run. It is open source. Yes. It's bloaty as shit. I think it runs in Java? Well, I'm pretty sure it comes with a whole web interface and everything, like straight out of the box. Right. If you like the way GitHub does things. Do they use GitLab? A similar alternative to... I don't know. I think at one point they might have. But I'm getting to a point where I'm saying, if you want to run your own web interface similar to GitHub, GitLab would be your best bet. But GitLab also hosts repositories as well. So GitHub isn't the only choice for a host. GitLab is probably the most complete open source server implementation of that kind of Git hosting. But you know what? I think that's a bunch of bullshit. So instead, there's something called Gitolite, which is written purely in Perl, right? Pearl and C or just Pearl? I think it might be entirely Pearl. I'm not sure though, in all honesty. I know it uses a lot of Pearl. I can't remember if it's 100% Pearl or... Yeah, I mean, in any case, it's super lightweight. Hence the name. But don't let that fool you. No, it's extremely feature rich. 
Yeah, you can tie it in with Seagit or GitWeb, where it really shines and where I haven't been able to find any sort of comparison is its permissions, though, which is what it was originally written to address. You can have groups, you can have users with multiple keys, you can only give access to certain files for some users, so they can only commit changes that touch those files. You can do that with branches, you can allow some people to only make commits during certain times or certain days of the week, all sorts of really Really wonderful crazy stuff you can do with ghetto light and it's super small so it's been my experience that that's the way to go it may not be pretty considering it doesn't really have a interface where you can log in and manage your forks and your pull requests and everything there and all that bullshit i think that's a plus in my book to be honest in all honesty if you're going to be using git learn how to do it from the command line and learn how to do it from the command line well because at that point you can interact with pretty much any git server that too. That's an important note. The command line Git is just, there's no GUI that comes close to doing what it can do. It's so powerful and so flexible. You can tell like the kernel maintainers wrote the thing because it's great. One of the favorite parts about it is it lets you generate patches based on differences in commits and stuff like that. So if you've got a static version of code lying around and you're like, oh, but I really want to bring it up to the modern, you can say, all right, take it from that commit or that release or whatever up to now, generate a patch from that. And then you can use the standard Unix patch utility and patch your code with that. It's so cool. Like there's a lot of things you can do. And really like of all the feature sets of Git, that's one of the more like basic ones. It's just wonderful. There is a definitely a learning curve to it though. I'll, I'll post some links to some of the books the Git manual and the ProGit documentation are just both fantastic and they're both free. I'll link to those, but it's definitely worth taking the time and learning those. GitOlite also has some really fantastic documentation. You start paging through and you understand like, wow, I can do a lot of stuff with this. For instance, normal Git, you'd have to maybe do a fair bit of scripting and rsyncing and a lot of unpleasantry stuff if you wanted to host your website and have it updated when you update the code in a Git repository. GitOlite lets you mirror a repository without write access, and then that mirror gets updated on every push. You would then be able to go to the web server. Yeah, you have to install Git, whatever, get over it. Set up a GitOlite mirror. You don't need GitOlite installed. You just need to have a Git client, from what I understand. And set that up, set it up as a remote in GitOlite, and boom, you're off. And he, he describes how to do this in his documentation. The guy who writes GitOlite is just a fantastic dude. Props to him. Yeah, and there's also an all-in-one page for the documentation that's super nice to look at if, you know, you're on yeah. a system such that you can view that nicely. Yeah, and this is why I was so pissed when Gentoo's main form of the manual went to split instead of one page. Typically, if I'm looking at that at the Gentoo manual or the GitOlite documentation, I'm in links, L-Y-N-X the text browser just because it's handy i'm already in the terminal all i have to do is just open up a tab or whatever and switch over to it and read the documentation there it's just so much easier to do when they put it all on one page it's easier to search so if you're writing documentation one page single page is the way to go at least make it an option did you have anything you want to specifically mention with GitOlite? mostly i haven't read any of like the huge git books i haven't read any of the huge git how to's but i'm pretty sure i've linked to you more than once yeah, at this point, I'm not in a position to take the time to do that at work right now. And I could do it on my own time, but I'd rather wait until I have time to just do that at work. But I'm still able to manage Gito Light, Gito Light, whatever. And it's effective for what we do. And that's with my limited knowledge of Git that I'm able to do that. And what I really love about it, working as part of the university, we have a very strict sort of system for gaining access to our systems and 
actually just getting an account in general with like the central authentication at, at CU. But the nice thing about Gitto Lite is because it relies on secure shell keys, we don't actually have to get a, like a sponsored account for everybody just to give them access to a Git server if they need to use it for a little while. That makes it a lot easier on us at times for certain things and certain collaborations that have to happen. And that's been really nice. Yeah. The other thing, you know, back in the day, I don't know if you remember you and I's endeavor to attempt to port NetBSD to the Shiva plug. Yep. I remember. That was the first time I had interacted with Gito Lite at all. And that was really just as a user of Git. And you were really administering the server. But it was really nice that I just had to toss you a public key and all of a sudden I had access. And that was the first time I, I admined a Gito Lite instance too. So that was... That was a while ago. That was really cool. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was, that was years ago. Absolutely. And that was on Gito Lite too. Now even Gito Lite 3 is in CentOS 6.5. So that should give you an idea of how long Gito Lite 3 has been out. But it brought a lot of cool new stuff with it. If you have the servers and you have in-house developers, why the hell would you sit, why the hell would you go to an outside source hosting? It just doesn't make sense. Well, especially if you're dealing with something that's sensitive that you don't want to share, even if you're using a private repository, there's always that chance that somebody else is going to leak your data. And if you're running it yourself, you have control over that. You can do whatever is in your power to prevent that. And I think that's a good peace of mind. Well, then there's always problems like people bringing a USB stick in. But at that point, that's like intentional espionage rather than, oops, I clicked the wrong button. Exactly. And that requires, you know, a higher level of physical access in a lot of cases. Yeah, you can lock it down to physical access. But I mean, you can't do that with GitHub. <laughs> so and since GitOlite uses SSH backend, you can do a lot of other cool stuff with straight SSH. If you really want, you could make it, I'd imagine you can make it password restriction. There's, pro I'm sure there's a way to like hack it so local uh, users via PAM could hook into that get a light service as well. I'm sure it's really extensible. I want to look into that now because that sounds like a cool project, but I have no practical use for it. So, but it's extensible enough where I'm sure that's possible. You know, it can do things I can't even think about right now, but I'm going to stop talking about that. We're wasting minutes. So we're going to talk about ethernet now and ethernet in the sense of the physical layer, not the material protocol. There's a couple different versions out. There's cat five, category five, cat five E, which is category five extended cat six A, which is category six advanced and its predecessor category six there's also something called category six e for enhanced but that's not like a real standard if you've got a cable vendor trying to chill you that like there's no standard for that there's no guarantee that even what you're getting is cat six so be really careful with that there is cat six a which is really cool stuff but we'll, we'll talk about that in a second so each of them have like subcategories and the categories define a lot of things like where you would put it the implementation level of shielding things like that the general categories for these is shielded versus unshielded so that's u slash s if you see a t that's for twisted pair which is good you want the twisted pair i don't think you can get untwisted pair anywhere but i think at one point you could it's it's horrible don't don't bother with it thankfully it's not really present so as long as it's twisted pair that's fine and then there's something called ftp which is fully shielded twisted pair which is really cool stuff that's if you want to get max spec speeds on your cable and we'll talk about those specs in a second you'll want to use that ftp not the protocol not the file transfer protocol it's fully twisted pair a fully shielded twisted pair so go for that because that cuts down crosstalk from outside emissions so like your phone your monitor your cell phone all these things can degrade the performance of your network cabling and you want to cut down on that that's what ftp aims to do for that cable spec and then there's also um stq and f 
FTQ. There actually, it might only be FTQ. I don't know if there's an STQ. That's fully shielded twisted quads which um it's basically a different way of twisting the cable so you get an even better protection against line noise it's really cool stuff so there are some key differences cat 5 is i believe 100 100 megahertz it's spec to go around 10 to 100 megabits per second now that's the spec speed you may be able to get more especially if it's only over a short distance and it's got really good shielding but you can't expect it you know it's, it's not written for that spec. It's not designed for it. Thankfully, you can't really find Cat5 anywhere. Cat5e is probably still the most common, I'd say, in, in terms of bulk retailers, which is how I get my cable. I get it in bulk and then cut it to size and then, you know, terminate it myself. Category 5e enhanced. I can't remember if it's 100 megahertz, 150 megahertz. I can't remember off the top of my head, but they twist the cabling in a, an approved way. And it also supports power over ethernet, which straight Cat5 does not. So it lets you do a little bit better stuff. You can get that power over ethernet, which is always handy for your net kit. And that is specced up to one gigabit per second. Again, theoretically, you may be able to stretch that, but it's specced to one gigabit per second, assuming the uh, the situations are appropriate. You know, you've got good shielding, all that. Suffering from a lot of crosstalk, you know, like crossed wires, which does generate line noise or other forms of line noise. Then you've got straight cat six, which is 200. 150 megahertz that's specced to 10 gigabits per second again assuming it's properly shielded and all that if you don't get 10 gigabits per second even though you've got cat 6 line and cat 6 switches all the way and cat 6 mix all the way which is what you would need at the very least to do 10 gigabit networking same with one gigabit all the hardware needs to support one gigabit if you're not getting proper 10 gig it's probably because it's not shielded correctly or it's got a kink in it or it just might be too long those are the things to look out for if you're not getting the speed you expect or it's it's possible you got it you terminated it bad I've, I've had a couple cases where I put a, a head on the end of the cable. I, I crimped too loosely and it just did shit for the performance. Absolutely. Those are really hard to debug. So Sometimes it's worth spending a little bit extra to get like higher quality cable because I find that if I spend a little bit more, it's way easier to actually like arrange the wires in the connector, the head, and crimp it properly. Yeah, you can never go too cheap when getting those heads. It's definitely something you want to look for. When I say like get the good shit, it's going to be like 80 cents a head instead of 25 or 50 cents a head. It's a negligible thing. Yeah. They're usually sold in like bulk units. They're not sold individually from what I know. Keep an eye out for those. Look for the good quality ones. The thing you have to look out for with Cat6 though is built into the spec for Cat6 is grounding and shielding. So Cat6 is a little bit different from Cat5. It's got a solid plastic core. It's very stiff. It's really hard to wrap around stuff. But truth be told, Ethernet wasn't designed for that in the first place. That's how you lose a lot of speed is by wrapping it around things and things like that. It loves just a straight travel with maybe a little bit of curve at most. You know, you don't go into a data center and see these sharp curves. You see nice, big, rounded out curves above, you know, assuming you do your, your cabling above your racks and stuff. Yeah, exactly. You're going to see it soft curves, no bends, no kinks, things like that. And Cat6 with its, uh, its stiff spine, its plastic spine, it really helps enforce that. It makes it a bit of a bear if you're trying to like run wall cabling, but you'll, you'll get through it. It's so. totally worth it. 
It's absolutely worth it. Yeah, wiring up my own house was... I mean, it's its one of the, the best things I did at my old house. I haven't wired this house yet because I'm not... I'm, I probably might be moving at some point in the next two years or so anyways. But yeah, I mean, if you have the chance and if you have a good reason to, definitely take the time and wire up your house. You'll notice such a good difference. Cat6 also has a ground line. So proper termination of Cat6, I can't remember if this is Cat6 or Cat6A, but to reduce line noise, you're supposed to ground out the wire, and that cuts down on the line noise tremendously. You'll also notice in Cat6 heads, they're shielded. You know, like Cat5, Cat5E heads, they're plastic. Cat6 uh, heads are shielded. They've got metal casing around them, and that also cuts down a lot on the on the crosstalk right within the NIC, because there's a lot of that that occurs in the NIC, especially if it's a NIC and a switch or something like that. That many network ports together is... is generally makes for a pretty noisy emi field that's electromagnetic interference now cat 6a i i don't know too much the differences other than the cable the cabling is rated at 500 megahertz instead of 250 so it's a much better quality cable it's going to be a lot easier to get some really good speeds and i think it includes by necessity of spec really good shielding so i think it's i think those are the key differences but it does allow you to get some much better speeds but again this is all under the assumption that you have fully 10g hardware in your network for cat 6 to really be of use to you. Which almost nobody does, especially in their house. I actually do. I use Cat6. Yeah, of course you do, but normal people don't. (laughs) Normal people don't. It's still pretty pricey for what it is. I would probably wait a little bit, maybe another three to five years. It should be within a a good consumer range. But you need all of your NICs to support Cat6. You need all of the switches to support Cat6. All the routers, everything. And that's just for... uh, 10g lan chances are you ain't gonna get 10g over your internet it's hard enough to get residential with one gigabit per second you know having a fast lan at the very least is great especially if you're running servers or a home lab or something like that which is what i do so yeah look into it the specs are pretty boring hopefully that narrowed it down and you understand it a little bit more as always pop in irc or shoot us an email if you have questions yeah and there's kind of a a generic breakdown that I found that we'll put in the show notes from Lifehacker Australia, it looks like. Is that... Oh, Lifehacker? Yeah. I'm not saying it's like yeah, the best Life, resource. Lifehacker Australia. Yeah, but I just found it real quick before we started because I realized we didn't have any. Yeah, if you know literally nothing about what we're talking about, it'll cover the basics and explain why there are differences and when you might want to use those differences. Even Wikipedia, like if you look up like Cat5, Cat6, they don't give Cat5e its own article, sadly. If you're more interested in the technical information behind those, that's another really fantastic resource. So check that out as well. Additionally, they are backwards compatible. So if you plug a Cat5e cable into a Cat5 switch, it'll work just fine. If you plug a Cat6a cable into a Cat5 switch, it'll, it should work just fine. The Cat6 cable may be a little tight because the heads, I think, are a little bit bigger, but um, it should still fit, generally speaking. And Cat6 and Cat6a, of course, do support PoE as well. I think they support a higher wattage than Cat5e too, but I don't know if that's accurate or not. So someone fact check me if it isn't. But I'm going to stop talking about Ethernet. Now we've got the fun stuff. Finally. Are you ready for the fun stuff? So there's a, a link I just wanted to... I'll toss it in the show notes, of course, which is what we do every time we talk about a link. But there's a really nice list of... They call it the Hacker's Arsenal, but I don't think that's a good name. I think it's more the information security interested 
Arsenal, but that's not a flashy name, so I can see why they went with Hacker Arsenal. It covers some stuff like tools for steganography, intentionally exploitable applications, auditing and scanning systems, browser exploitation toolkits, all sorts of really great stuff. If you want to get into InfoSec or even just pen test your own company, again, again, with proper authorization, it has a really, really good list of tools to get into. And Nmap is on that list. So the only one I really want to talk about specifically is Nmap. Nmap is Network Mapper, written by a guy named Fyodor, I think. Not sure. I actually just reordered the Nmap book. I had a copy a long time ago, and I lent it out, and I never received it back. But it's a great book. It's really thick. It's maybe like two and a half inches thick, and it's all about Nmap because it's a very powerful piece of software. It has its own like scripting engine. You can use Lua scripts, but it does a lot of really cool things. You can map out IP addresses. You can map out ARP addresses, so MAC addresses, basically, and map those to IPs, as long as, you know, you're in an environment that supports it. So, like, only if you're on the LAN can you do that, but whatever. And, of course, it does port scanning, which is what it's most commonly used for. I mean, I use Nmap at least once a week, if not more often. Usually, probably closer to once every two days. It lets you check a service, so you can run a port scan on a port, or a whole range of ports, and you can do service detection, and it'll tell you, again, what software version and what services on that port. It can also do cool things like operating system fingerprinting. If you find a port and you're like, I wonder what operating system this is using, you can run Nmap against it. And assuming it can find enough open ports, usually with two or three, you can can get a pretty accurate guess. It'll give you an estimate of how sure it is of that guess as well. Sometimes it even gets lucky and can do it on one port, you know. But it's just a very powerful piece of software. I'd say if you're scanning one address or a range of addresses, it's probably the best. And it's open source. Kudos to that. It's it's definitely useful. I use it a lot because I'm a network engineer. It's great for pen testing. It's great for compliance audits where like it's 99% checking what ports are open and the version of software on those ports, you know. It's really just fantastic for stuff like that. So have it go. We'll post the, the list. Just page through it. Read about the different pieces of software. Let us know of any suggestions you might have because I'd love to keep like a list of these somewhere on our wiki as well. All the tools we come across. Yeah, that could be cool. Another list I'm going to put up is... uh how to on building your own cracking rig so there's hashcat it's like a rules-based cracking tool software engine whatever and it's different from john the ripper john the ripper is pretty dumb in the sense that it only supports like really basic patterns dictionary attacks and that's pretty much it hashcat and it has a much faster gpu cracking version called ocl hashcat which supports both numa and cuda i hope i'm pronouncing those right it's nvidia and amd and then there's well cuda's right for sure yeah i think the other one i'm pretty sure nvidia's is numa but i'm not i'm not 100 on that pronunciation but then there's also like open cuda i think which is geared towards opening up cuda for other non-amd slash ati gpus as well but the point is ocl hashcat uses GPU, which are which is immensely faster than CPU cracking, mainly just because of how GPU processors are designed and architecture. You can do really neat things with Hashcat, and one of those things is building a cracking rig. So basically what you do is you get a box, and then you just SLI together a shit ton of video cards, like eight of them. You typically can get a good crack in about, like, you can get a good crack of, like, maybe an MD5 in a couple hours to a couple minutes. You know, it's really wonderful stuff. So I'm going to post a link up on that. There's not a whole lot I wanted to say. I just found it. Thought it was really cool. Looks like a great side project. And start shoving some of your passwords through there. See how long it takes to crack them. 
some of your hashes, I should say, through there and, and see how long it takes to crack them. Because uh, that gives you a good idea of what you're dealing with. I do want to mention also that the NSA, at the very least, has hardware to crack 3DS. 3DES. Triple DES, basically. A lot of people still think it's safe. And I got into a, a shit fit on Twitter over this like a, two days ago, I think. But guys, it's known cracked. It may take a while. It's not easily, you know, smacked around like MD5 or SHA-1. But it's known broken. I mean, the NSA at the very least, can definitely break it. We know it's possible to break triple DES. Currently, you need maybe, I think it's like a $250,000 machine to do it. There's a way to possibly do it on FPGA. That's uh, something programmable gate, something or other, boards rather. And you can end up breaking MS Chap V2 hashes, for instance, in about 23 hours tops. And that uses a form. It's a flawed form, but it's a form nonetheless of triple DES. And that costs a lot less. That's that's total cost, maybe like 200, 300 bucks. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on with that, but I would not trust triple DES at all anymore. Just stick with AES 256 and you'll definitely buy yourself some time with that. So yeah, cracking rigs are cool. Everybody wants one. Give you a link telling you how to make them. And lastly, our friend Liz, Liz was on the show. I think she was, what was she? Season, season zero, episode zero, episode three? four, four, four. Yeah. I put it in the show notes because um, I knew we were going to, we were going to mention it. Oh, right. I'm looking right at it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> John, Jathan even put a note here. Liz was on SOE for us since we're going to want to fucking say that, but won't have looked it up. You know us so because well. we do that all the time. <laughs> I know. Oh, man. Oh, that's I love that. That's creepy how accurate that was. But yeah, so season zero, episode four, go give a listen. We have a great interview with her. It's it's the whole episode. She's a, a wonderful friend of ours. She's done a lot for the Ubuntu community. I may hate Ubuntu. Jathan may hate Ubuntu. But at the end of the day, they're still Linux. They do still give a lot back to the general linux community so props to them and props to her so she let us know about something called regexcrossword.com and it's kind of cool it's like regex sudoku kind of do not rely on it to learn regular expressions if you don't already know them that's my advice right it's a practice tool it's definitely a practice tool it's a, a teaser tool it's meant to challenge you in your use of regexes and and keep you fresh you know it's not meant to teach you them we will post a couple look uh, links to places where you can learn how to do regex i know i've posted this before as well but it looks like these are additional ones really there's yeah, a lot a of books of, on it absolutely there's tons of resources to learn regular expressions to Two of the resources that I posted in our show notes before this, not counting the crossword, are um, interactive. So that's pretty mm -hmm. cool because you can just do it in your browser when you've got a free moment. You know, take the next lesson, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and even before you start jumping into regex crossword, I would try and do a few real world use cases first. Oh, you know, back up your files first, but like sit down and say, all right, I want to change. I want to take my password file, replace all instances of sbin slash no login and change it to slash bin slash false. Exactly. And do other yeah. practical things like take a file and say, okay, I want to uncomment every line in this file. And yeah, then take that's the same a file. One. Yeah, and comment then take every the file. Lines. Well, comment yeah. all the lines, not only that, but take every line that's commented and remove the whole line. Because, yeah. you know, if you're in Set a is... if you're in an embedded environment or something like that, that's something that's really useful to save space sometimes. Yeah, then you don't even, I mean, really, you don't even technically need an editor. You just need said. So exactly. you don't need VI or anything like that. And chances are if you're in an embedded environment, it'll have VI, like NVI, like the BSD VI that's stupid simple not not vim learning regex is invaluable absolutely i use it all i use said 
probably on the command line on the shell alone, probably once every 30 minutes, 20 minutes. And in my scripts, you know, countless lines of said are, are being run through there. So learn said, learn regex. Really, if you learn regex, you you, you kind of learn said anyways. Learn extended regex because it, it means you have to escape a lot less and it's a lot easier on, on typing. And yeah, have at it. Think of things that would make sense to do. I, I want to comment all these lines or I want to delete only this range of lines or I want to delete only this line number things like that think of analogies to what you would normally be doing if what you find yourself doing day in day out and implement it programmatically it's definitely well worth the the time and investment to to learn that and one more closing note on that topic it's actually our last topic one more closing note guys don't redirect the output of said to a new file and then copy it over to the old file you know said has an edit in place option with an option to back up the the original file slash i or, or hyphen i look it up it's in the man page i i don't i see this all the time especially on the ubuntu forums <laughs> people redirect the output of said to a new file and then move over the old file don't do that that's a waste of time that's a waste of typing oh i get so angry about that especially when said like it's kind of like like what it's kind of like catting a file and then gripping it or, or like catting it and piping it to less. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly like that. Yeah. It's unnecessary use of cat. Only in this case, it's un- unnecessary use of redirect, I guess. Now, granted, if you're trying to pipe it into something else, I would do it that way. But if you're trying to edit a file and want those changes applied directly to the file, just use the, the hyphen I switch. And then you can suffix it with like a file extension you want if you want to back up the original so you can do hyphen i dot bak so then you'd have a file dot bak which is the original unedited version and then a file named file with the new changes you introduce it's really cool stuff but learn said learn regex it'll save you so much time and and it's kind of a fun little puzzle finding a, a really good expression too that's all i have to talk about do you have anything else nope i think i'm good there that's all we have this time this is brent i'm jonathan this has been System Ministry. See you later.